Hey, Danny. What's up, Tyler? Just, you know, starting off episode 82 of Fried Squirms. It's, it's fun to be Fucking Wicker Man. It's the Wicker Man episode today. Dude, I'm excited. I know I say that a lot, but this one's good. By the way, uh, if you didn't look at the title closely enough, this is not the Nick Cage Wicker yeah. Man. So, sorry for those who were anticipating the 2006 version. <laughs> we're going old school. Going old school on this one. We might do the Nick Cage one sometime. I almost watched it this week, but then I played a shit ton of video games instead. <laughs> no, I didn't watch it. I kind of avoided it, so I've got some other news to share about that. But yeah, man, I'm looking forward to today's episode because of The Wicker Man, but you know, um, as we what do... you have news for the week? I mentioned to you a little while ago that this past Friday I went and seen the Pixies at the Kettle House, which was really cool, man. It's a good venue. Good turnout. It was actually sold out, so that was nice to see. Played a lot of good songs, a lot of old songs. So, yeah, oh, yeah. it's pretty cool, man. So I did that. Yesterday we had a fantasy football draft already, so I know it's super early, but did that yesterday, and that was kind of what I did personally. And then, you know, we like to talk about some news, so I didn't know if you wanted to kick it off or... I could. I only have a couple little news items. Yeah, I'll let you share it just in case I overlap you. I saw that a few days ago, Halloween got its official rating, rated R, go figure, but that's always kind of notable just because that means the movie's in the can. Exactly. They can't make any changes now. No more reshoots. It's, it's rated, ready. so it's ready to go. Nice. And then I saw that Lionsgate was going to be doing Evil Dead 4K release. And I we saw were that. just talking about the Evil Dead 2 4K release that's going to be coming up too. So. so, I mean, for those who need an updated version of the Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2, they're getting their 4Ks. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm thinking very much of possibly buying them. At some point, I will. I just don't know how soon or how late I want to get them, but I'll probably have to wait a little while, so that's cool. Yeah, we'll see. That might happen. Nice. The other thing, we end up talking about how we're fans of the guy often enough. I finally got around to watching 31 this week. Oh, cool. What do you think? The latest Rob Zombie. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, without saying a whole lot it's probably not his strongest entry but it's not but there's nothing his bad either. about it no it does leave me wanting a little bit more but the performances were fun it felt a little bit restrained towards the beginning but there were some really cool kills later on and shit so i don't know it just wasn't as interesting as some of his others it seemed like he was just trying to grab all the good shit from both House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects and being like, hey, you guys like it when I do 70s shit. <laughs> yeah. And it was just another, like, 70s exploitation-ish horror. Yeah, I agree with that. It was fine. Felt a little running manny. It kind of does. I agree with you there. It certainly does. I liked Doomhead. Yeah. He's also the Night King in Game of Thrones. That was dope seeing him. I love seeing Malcolm McDowell. He was great, yeah. even though a smaller part than I hoped. Which, so cool seeing him. And his part kind of reminded me of The Purge, especially just <laughs> coming out of our Purge month. But, I mean, I would recommend watching it, especially if, like, you've sort of ran out of other horror things to watch. Like, there's nothing bad about it. It's just not anything special. Yeah, I know what you're saying there. It's nothing necessarily right home to mom and dad. It's not House of a Thousand Corpses, and it's not Devil's Rejects. Like, I would almost say go rewatch those again, but if you haven't seen it yet, it's worth checking out at least the one time, I would say. Yeah, I can agree with that. If you're familiar with Zombies films, man, check out the rest of his catalog. Lots of pointless titties, which I'm okay with. okay with that. Speaking of pointless titties. Yeah, well, (laughs) the pointless part. (laughs) Yeah, I guess a few things that I can share... 
Unless you got out at some other bits. No, no, that's all I got okay. until we get to the Wicker Man. And it's titties. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So we've talked about this film a few times just because we probably grew up with it, you and I both. But Target are releasing the 25th anniversary Hocus Pocus on Blu-ray, which oh, okay. will include a 40-page gallery book. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So for fans of that, which there are a lot of fans of Hocus Pocus, check out your local Target and seek out a copy when it comes out. So we did a Lucio Fulci film not too long ago, and there is another 4K restoration, and this time it's of Lucio Fulci's Zombie, which is coming with the coolest lenticular slipcovers ever, apparently. So this is a two-disc, and then they have a three-disc limited edition, too. So We just need to get to the point of the Matrix so that I can have Lucio Fulci Zombie in my head. <laughs> That's funny. In my head. Eventually. But this in is being head. released by Blue Underground, which I actually have their DVD copy of it. So I'm not going to double dip anytime soon, but eventually I will get this. So the next thing I have is on a franchise that we've talked about a little bit. Like when I say a little bit, it's mostly because of some of its upcoming credits that were involved in some other projects but apparently the puppet master the littlest reich has a super gory red band trailer which says it promises the trailer is violent insanity i haven't watched it yet but i've heard the trailer is pretty great i haven't watched any of those puppet master movies and i don't know how long but when i say great i mean great in the way that only the puppet master well, of course be. like it's not going to be Super great. No, but for those who like kind of the B, maybe C side of horror and just pure cheesiness, they're pretty decent, man. I can't deny that. But I was looking at some of the cast members. So they do have Udo Kier. He's in this. Thomas Lennon from Reno 911 and some other comedy bits. Thomas Lennon. Yeah, Barbara Crampton, who we've talked about, of course. And Michael Paré. We've talked about him a little bit because he was in Bone Tomahawk. Oh, okay. And he was actually the guy who played Eddie in the film Eddie and the Cruisers. Mm. Yeah, so there's a couple of the people that are involved with this project. But yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to it, man. I think it's probably a good way to get back into that franchise. All right, and so I have two other bits of information. Let's see, there's two cast members who have been added to Dr. Sleep. So they have found their Wendy Torrance and Dick Halloran in the Shining sequel. So for those who are familiar, we talked about The Shining. This apparently is like a continuation after the facts that happened in The Shining. So we've already talked about Ewan McGregor getting the role of Danny Torrance. It appears that Carl Lumby is playing Dick Halloran and Alex Essoe. She is playing Wendy Torrance and... Along with that, Ewan McGregor does say that Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep is very faithful to the book. So what that means is that for those who are familiar with Stephen King works, they tend to be loosely adapted (laughs) into film. So Mike Flanagan's already done Gerald's Game. Okay. That came out not too long ago. So he's already familiar with some of King's works and adaptations. We'll see what happens. But that's slated for 2020, that release. So I'm kind of looking forward to it. I know Patrick said some good things about the novel. So mm-hmm. we'll get to see what they do with the movie. But yeah, that's about all I really have for the week. Shit, I got nothing. Let's get into the Wicker Man. Yeah. Well, let's not get into the Wicker Man. Like, that's not a good thing. Let's get into how this bad boy was made. <laughs> <laughs>
Guts and Bolts. All right, Guts and Bolts for The Wicker Man, 1973, not 2006. (laughs) Not quite. I just want to reiterate that because I personally kind of dig that version because Nick Cage was so over the top. Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of those films that's kind of so bad it's good. And Um, yeah, it's Nick Cage. But this isn't that. No, it's not that version, which by, I'd say, most measures, this is the far superior version. (laughs) I mean, this movie's far superior to a lot of movies. Let's just say that right now. Concur with that. Although it's really weird, and it's going to be another movie that's definitely not for everybody. Yeah, I concur with that as well. Although maybe not because of the same reasons we've had to say that about movies in the past. Like, this isn't going to be insanely gory or anything. No, nothing like that. Just weird. Yeah, this one is kind of a hard one to pigeonhole. So... You actually came in as I was finishing doing my watching, so I'm actually kind of lacking on cast and crew notes, but I know that you always come rather prepared in that area, so... Yeah, no doubt. So before we lead off with our cast and crew, let's give a little synopsis of this film. Ooh, synopsis. A lawful, stupid police officer goes to check on the disappearance of a child and runs afoul of the local inhabitants and their religion yeah maybe not necessarily runs afoul but there's a game afoot there's something awry <laughs> yeah so that's a pretty good brief synopsis of what with christopher does. lee yeah how can you not like christopher lee so with that synopsis i guess i can lead off and we all talk about the person who directed this film and this was directed by robin hardy now he hasn't done very much works he's mostly a writer of novels but some of the films that I do have to his credit are the film The Fantasist and The Wicker Tree, which was a much later adapted kind of sequel to this. He had plans for a third, but then he died. Yeah, I mean, that's what happens to old people. <laughs> that sounds shitty, but it's going to happen one day for us. But yeah, along with Mr. Hardy, we do have a few writers. And the first person I'll mention is David Penner because the novel Ritual is what this movie is based upon. And the person who helped write the script in the screenplay is Anthony Schaffer. And he's known for doing some really cool films as far as writing. And some of those projects include the film Frenzy, the film Sleuth, Murder on the Orient Express, even though he was uncredited. He was also the writer on Death on the Nile, the film Absolution, Evil Under the Sun, Appointment with Death, and Somersby. So those are more of his famous works. Our cinematographer on this is Harry Waxman. Now, he's done such films as Brighton Rock, Sapphire, Swiss Family Robinson. Oh, I love Swiss Family Robinson. So you might be familiar with that. I grew up with that. That show would come on like TBS and shit all the time. Yeah, I've seen that. I don't know how many times as well. Dude, I was always so fucking jealous of their treehouse. Like the coolest treehouse in the fucking world. Damn right, man. (laughs) They had it, fucking Robinsons. So along with some of those works, he's also done cinematography on The Day That the Earth Caught Fire, Crooks and Cloisters, The Nanny, The Anniversary, Vampires with Y, and a film known as The Pink Panther Strikes Again, which we're going to talk about the actor in that film because he's married to one of the cast members, or was at one time. All right, so our editor on this film is Eric Boyd Perkins. He's known for editing the films The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, Night Creatures, The Gorgon, Julius Caesar, and Antony and Cleopatra. The music was done by 
Paul Giovanni. He helped compose the music. Now, he's also helped because there's a performance by the band Magnet. So they're the ones who help with the instrumental aspects of the film. But Paul Giovanni is known for such works as uh, Michael and Claire, A Portrait of Love and Dreams, which is a film that he helped. Well, actually, his, some of his pieces were used. So for that soundtrack, the song Corn Rigs was used. For those who have seen the film Hostel, the song How Do is used in that. This Hollow Sacrament, which is a video, Corn Rigs was used for their soundtrack. So there's a couple of works that have used some of his pieces. Now, along with that, we do have this film as being produced by Peter Schnell. The production company was British Lion Film Corporation. The distributors were British Lion Film Corporation. They helped with the 1973 United Kingdom theatrical release. And Warner Brothers helped with a 1975 USA theatrical release. This film was released on December 6, 1973 in the United Kingdom and later on August 7, 1974 here in the States. It had an estimated 500,000 pounds budget. It's not the same as dollars, which I guess by today's standards, probably what, about 750,000, 700,000, something like that. Yeah, roughly. and then but then inflation as well. So Yeah, so probably closer to a million, million and a half, something like that, I would imagine. All right, so I do have a few taglines on this film. The first tagline I have, and these are almost read-like synopsis too, so keep that in mind, but it says, The residents of Summer Isle invited Sergeant Howie to their traditional May Day festival. He didn't expect to meet the Wicker Man. That's the first one I have. And the second one is Flesh to Touch, Flesh to Burn. Don't keep the Wicker Man waiting. (laughs) Do you have any more? Is that it for the tagline? That was it. That's all I have. Okay, so... I feel like I should point out with you talking about those taglines that the director hated the way they promoted this movie. I'm looking at one of the posters right now, and that's why. (laughs) Pretty much every poster for this movie had the Wicker Man, big and large, right on it, with taglines that sort of alluded to exactly what was going to be going on with the Wicker Man. And he was like... He's really fucked up. He's like, that's like just throwing on like the fucking twist at the end of Psycho just right on the poster. I know. To him. I mean, to his credit, I totally agree. I don't feel like it's as big of a twist, but I definitely see where he's getting it. It is a It's kind of a fucked up decision. Like, especially when you have the much less spoilery and possibly more creepy imagery to turn to of the villagers in animal masks yeah throw that on the poster there's a lot of different directions they could have gone in aside from (laughs) putting the wicker man on the poster put christopher lee in drag dude fuck yeah on the poster (laughs) yeah yeah with a haysickle (laughs) i would have loved that that would have been awesome but you're right it does give away a lot Mm -hmm. so yeah it's kind of unfortunate I guess along with that, man, we can get into the cast because I, I guess also that crew. was kind of spoilery talk, but we are talking about shit that's literally directly on the poster. So. Yeah, I mean, it's if you've seen the poster, it's kind of a giveaway, mm-hmm. you know. So we'll the get Wicker to that Man point. exists. Sorry, spoiler. I mean, kind of, but not Fuck really. You. <laughs> it's not our fault. It's, like I said, the way that it was marketed too. So, I guess the first person I'll kind of lead off with is our arguably our lead actor in this film. <laughs> But this gentleman is Edward Woodward, and he plays Sergeant Neil Howey. And I looked at some of his works, and now he goes back quite a bit. I believe he got some work doing films such as Breaker Morant, and there was a thing called Who Dare Wins, and it was also known as The Final Option. 
So some of those works helped garner him this role. And I think it was a production that he did for like, I don't know if it was BBC, one of those productions. But he was known on a television series called Callan. It was a TV series and it was a movie. A lot of that stuff really helped him kind of garner more attention. He got the role for The Wicker Man. And then much later, <laughs> there was a show I used to watch as a kid. I had no idea who he was. I do now, but I used to watch the show The Equalizer. I was going to say, this motherfucker is the original Equalizer. Because yeah. now we have Denzel about to tear it up in The Equalizer 2. That's craziness. Of course, the movie is being based off of that old original property. Yeah. Updating it from being an old white guy to an old black guy. <laughs> it's wild, man. Uh, also, Equalizer 2 looks dope. I've never, I never even watched the first one, and I want to see the second one after seeing the trailer. Huh. That'd be interesting. I mean, it's Denzel. Yeah. I also noticed, keeping kind of in theme with him being in this movie, he's in Hot Fuzz. I saw that, yeah. Which, Which is really cool. I would say it's Hot good, Fuzz has film. creepy similarities to this movie. It really does. It certainly does. And so I'm guessing that casting was not an accident. No, I I'm would guessing it not. was absolutely purposeful because of his role in The Wicker Man. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's pretty... no way that he's in both of those movies on accident. No. Given what we know, there's no way. <laughs> Go watch Hot Fuzz, by the way. That's a great film, man. Great movie. It's a really good movie. All right. So, some of the other works I have, what we're doing, are A Congregation of Ghosts. He was in Theater 625, and there was a part of it, like a three-part series called Sword of Honor. He was in the television series The Saint, not the movie. <laughs> you might have also seen him in La Femme Nikita and the British show East Enders. Now, the next major actor, we've already talked about him, but Christopher Lee. He plays Lord Summer Isle in this film, and we talked about him back on The Devil Rides Out, and we've also talked about him in Dracula. So we've, this is, what, our third film covering Christopher Lee? So, I mean, this guy has so many credits and so many cool things to talk about. So we could I, spend all day here. I know. Christopher Lee is essentially one of the most interesting men to have ever lived. I just thought, before the very first time we talked about Christopher Lee on the show, I had a list that I fucking read it's off. It's like 21 like, facts or something. Yeah, and I can't remember how many of them I went through. I might have went through them I all. I think we might have went through all of them, yeah. Which is cool. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to literally choose three at random to okay. show you just how, just in case this is, you know, if you're new to this and you haven't heard us talk about Christopher Lee before, Jesus. here's some of the reasons, like, it's insane. Let's see, what do we got here? He was entered in the Guinness Book World Records in 2007 for most screen credits, having appeared in 244 film and TV movies by that point in his career, and then made 14 more movies. With a 15th due later this year when this article was done in whatever. I don't want to scroll away from where I'm at now. He also holds the record for the tallest leading actor. He stood six foot five, but also for starring in the most films with a sword fight with 17. Yeah, I remember that fact. Some things I remember off of that without even looking were the fact that he's done like several metal albums about Charlemagne. <laughs> yeah. Two metal albums, three metal albums. Something I can't like remember. That, yeah. Based on the life of Charlemagne, who he's descended from. Yeah, go figure. Right? If I remember right, he's related during, to Ian Fleming as well. <laughs> during World War II, Lee joined the Royal Air Force, but wasn't allowed to fly because of a problem with his optic nerve. So he became an intelligence officer for the Long Range Desert Patrol, forerunner of the SAS, Britain's Special Forces. He fought the Nazis in North Africa, often having up to five missions a day. 
During this time, he helped retake Sicily, prevented a mutiny among his troops, contracted malaria six times in a single year, and climbed Mount Vesuvius three days before it erupted. At some point during the war, he moved from the long-range desert patrol to Winston Churchill's even more elite special operations executive, also known as the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Yeah, that's a pretty boss name. Whose missions are still classified, but involved conducting espionage, sabotage, and reconnaissance in an occupied Europe against Axis powers. We got awesome stuff like, I'll just do one more right now. In the 50s, Christopher Lee was engaged to Henriette von Rosen, daughter of Count Fritz von Rosen. The Count apparently didn't like Lee because after hiring private detectives to investigate the actor and demanding references, he also refused to allow his daughter to marry him unless Lee got the blessing of the King of Sweden. Lee got it. Yeah, that's fucking amazing. It's remarkable, man. I mean, that's just the tip just of the fucking Yeah, iceberg. we're just scratching the surface at this point. Go look up Christopher Lee. He's the coolest guy ever. And we also talked about the degrees of separation for actors with Christopher Lee in his lesson three. Because of being in so many movies, he's the center of the Hollywood universe. Yeah, you can't help it. Not Kevin Bacon. No. Christopher Lee. Exactly. More than splits it in half. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, so for those who still want to know more about him, there's that article about 21 Interesting Facts. Some of the films... Without even looking, that some of the ones that kind of jump out would probably be the like Lord of the Rings, those series. He was in the Hobbit kind of shit. And he was Saruman. Yeah, he was in the Howling Part Two. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the first time I'd ever seen him in a film. To be honest, I mean, he was in so many one Hammer of the more Studios, Dracula. He's one of the more famous Draculas. I mean, come on, he's just such an imposing figure, and what he just five? passed away just couple years ago he lived to be like 93 so i'm sure you've seen him at some point in in your time but yeah check him out i mean we've already covered him (laughs) all right so the next person that i do have in this film is diane salento she plays miss rose in this and she actually came out of retirement semi-retirement in order to do this film so what i have are some of her works now she was in a film called passage home she got i believe best supporting actress or an academy award for best supporting actress for her role in tom jones she was in the film the third secret you might have seen her in the agony and the ecstasy she was in a film ombre with i believe it was paul newman and she was also in the film rattle of a simple man do you know what else sean connery was in her yeah from what i understand baby is that uh <laughs> He apparently got in some trouble. He was accused of being a uh, abuser of sorts. So, yeah. I don't believe it ended too well. But, yeah, she was like the second wife, I believe, of mm-hmm. Mr. Connery. Yeah. For uh, 11 years. Which is, you know, it's kind of neat. I think that's part of the reason why she got out of acting, too, is during that stretch she was the breadwinner. So, keep it in check, baby. But I um, believe she was also an Australian actress on top of it. There are no Scottish women <laughs> lead actresses in this film, ironically enough. No, and then she met Anthony Schaffer yeah, and they, on the set of this. Yeah, and, and they were they a couple were for a while, so that was kind of neat, yeah. So along with Mrs. Salento, I have Britt Eklund. She plays Willow in this film, and she's Swedish, and she was known for some works as After the Fox, the film The Bobo, The Night They Raided Minsky's. The fucking man with the golden gun. Yeah. She was in Get Carter. What Which, the... <laughs> another movie that got remade. Yeah, oh yeah, that was like not too long ago, actually. Well, either. like early 2000s. Yeah, close enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> relatively speaking. She was also known as being the wife of somebody I mentioned a little earlier. 
But she apparently was with Peter Sellers for a while, who played the Pink Panther, which is really neat. Now, she was also at one time linked with Rod Stewart. There's some interesting facts about that, but she was also pregnant during the filming of this film, and she had a couple of stand-ins, which I'll talk about later. But some of her other credits include What the Peeper Saw. She was in the film Baxter. You already mentioned The Man with the Golden Gun. She was in the film The Monster Club. Satan's Mistress, Endless Night, and Asylum. And at one point, she was the most photographed celebrity in the world. And this was mostly during the 70s. And there's some obvious reasons why. Now, the next actress I have is actually the Polish actress I was talking about. is Ingrid Pitt, and she plays the librarian in this film. And she was mostly known for a lot of her work in horror back in the 60s and 70s. Her and Lee both were in Hammer Productions. They certainly were. Which you know, leads this movie to sometimes being accidentally identified as a Hammer production. Which I can understand to an extent, you know, given. Now, some of her works include the films Dr. Zhivago, she was in Sound of Horror, Where Eagles Dare, The Vampire Lovers, she was also in Countess Dracula, The House That Drip Blood. With Christopher Lee. Yep. The Cloak. She was also in the film The Final Option. Now, she was an octopusy, but she was an uncredited voice in that film. And she was also in a few episodes of Doctor Who from 1972 and 1984, which was really cool. The next actor I have on this film is Lindsay Kemp. He plays Alder McGregor, who's also the landlord of this film. He was in a few productions. He was in The Vampire Lovers, Savage Messiah, The Stud, and a film I really enjoy is Velvet Goldmine, but he's known for being a mime and a theatrical worker. Not only that, but I think there was a little bit of an in-joke that he was supposed to be the one with a daughter to begin with because he was also known for yeah. being openly gay. Yeah, it's pretty obvious in this film, too. He's a bit flamboyant. He's, Just like, having bit. to hold it back in this role. Yeah, yeah. How much is debatable, but you can certainly tell. It's not a big deal, but yeah. But I have a feeling that was a little bit of a, a casting joke, you know? I, I would mean, imagine like... so, given, too, and given some of the songs in this film. <laughs> it's pretty funny. All right, so along with Mr. Kemp, I do have another actor. His name is Aubrey Morris. He plays the old gardener slash gravedigger in this film. Now, we did talk about Malcolm McDowell a little while ago, and the reason being is because Mr. Morris was in A Clockwork Orange. He's also in the film Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. Yeah. Oh, that's why I recognized him. He's, he's the, one the creeper. Helps. Yeah. And Clockwork Orange. <laughs> yes. Oh, he's a, he's a big-time creeper. Yeah. <laughs> he's also in the film Litztomania, which is based on Litzt, the musician, <laughs> for obvious reasons. He was also in the film Life Force. You might have seen him in the film The Rachel Papers. He was in My Girl 2. And he was also in The Tales from the Crypt, Bordello of Blood. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe he's in an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I need to check that one out. It looks pretty decent. So the next person I have in this film is Russell Waters. He plays the Harbor Master. He was actually in The Devil Rides Out. He was in the television series The Avengers. He was also in Yesterday's Enemy and a film called Black Jack. Now, I looked at Black Jack, and apparently that's uh, an inspiration for one of Wes Anderson's films. Mm. So I was like, huh, it's pretty neat. This guy, I mean, he's been in a shit ton of film credits, I see. But that was kind of the ones that stood out to me. Twisted Nerve. That's pretty dope. Yeah, he's got an extensive catalog. The next person I have is John Young. He plays the fishmonger in this, and 
He's actually been a part of a couple of Monty Python productions. He was in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You might have seen him in Life of Brian. He was also in the film Blackjack. He was in The Chariots of Fire and the film The Time Bandits. The next person I have is John Sharp. He plays Dr. Ewan in this film. You might have seen him in Brother Son, Sister Moon. He was in Barry Lyndon. He was also in a Monty Python film, Jabberwocky, which is pretty funny, and a Val Kilmer film, Top Secret. Well, oh, wait, wait, who was? John Sharp, he plays Dr. Ewan in this film. Let me take a look at this motherfucker, because I have watched Top Secret a number of times, and I can't believe I didn't recognize him. Oh, my fucking God, it is the maitre d'. Oh, my God, how did I not recognize? Okay, I feel kind of dumb now. I love Top Secret. That's such a good movie. I did think we should pop back really quick to John Young. Yeah. Just to point out, because I think as soon as you say that he's in Holy Grail, people are going to be wondering who. He's the motherfucking historian. How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, man, there's some pretty unique actors and actresses in this film. Even though they might not get a lot of screen time, they've been in some pretty cool shit. Anyway. Yeah, so the next credited person I have worth of note is John Hallam. He plays PC, which is Police Constable McTaggart. Now, if you've seen the longer version of this film, then you probably would have recognized him. I believe he's in the extended cut, because I've seen the theatrical and the final cut, and I didn't see him in either one of those. So anyhow, he was in films such as Dragon Slayer. He was in Flash Gordon. Ah. <laughs> He was also in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and he was also in the movie Life Force. Life Force. Force. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, damn, there's a couple of people that were in Life Force. Fucking Toby Hooper's, what, Space Vampire movie? Yeah, it's probably not his strongest. <laughs> you're going to have. So the other people I will mention in this film, even though I don't have a lot of their credits, are Irene Sunter. She plays Mae Morrison. Donald Eccles plays T.H. Lennox in this film. Walter Carr is the schoolmaster. We have Roy Boyd as Broom. There's Peter Brewis as the musician. And Geraldine Cowper, she plays Rowan Morrison, which actually she has a twin sister, and her twin sister shows up a few times more than she does. Her twin sister is the fucking picture. Yeah, the picture and some of the scenes in the cave. Yeah. Yeah, so. That is literally more than she shows up in this. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. It's just kind of funny, man, that. She's the one who gets credited. And for those who have seen the longer version, Tony Roper plays the postman. So that pretty much rounds out the cast and crew. We gave you a brief synopsis. We should give you some warnings. Ooh, uh, let's see. Warning. We already talked about boobs. There's boobies. There's, boobs. There's a lot of just, like, it's kind of a body movie. There's a lot of overt sexual references. Oh, no doubt. And I guess violence at the end. They don't really like show you up close, though. Not like, much, you know what's going on, and you hear some screaming, so it's exactly. not the worst. But if you don't like being on an island, and then and just general heathenry. Yeah, if you don't like heathenry, <laughs> if you don't believe in that kind of stuff, then yeah, this might not be your cup of tea. And actually, you know, we've kind of alluded to it too. It's uh, it's not really for everybody. I think it's for those who get it. Oh, and if you Thank don't you. like folk music, don't fucking watch this movie. Oh my gosh, dude. <laughs> I got a lot to say about that. But yeah, if you don't like folk music... Oh, and yeah. not like normal folk music. No. No, no, no. This is like 70s folk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We should really point that out. This is 70s folk music. Yeah, oh yes. <laughs> when folk was kind of more its own genre than it currently is. Currently is, yeah. It's not your top 40. <laughs> Ooh, Yeah. Shit, I think that's, that. yeah, I don't know. This really isn't 
It's tame, it's really. That, no, it's pretty tame, as long as you're okay with boobs and sex. Yeah, then you'll be fine. If you're not in a fucking prude. Yeah. If you're not overtly religious, then you'll be okay. Yeah, I'm good. Cool, let's do it. God, what's happening to me? God, where am I? Why am I hearing these things? Oh God, what... What's going on? Jesus, come on. Oh my god, what's what's going on? Where where am I? Oh gee, why? Why? Come on. Somebody, somebody. Ah. Come on, come on, come on. Come on, somebody. Sir. Come on. Somebody, somebody's there. Somebody's gotta be there. I will shock you. Come on. Sir. Come on, Sir, you must listen to me. Sir, I only have one question. How does that make you squeal? Yay, Wicker Man. Now we fucking talk about this. Yeah, so this is... We kind is... of already did. He gets burned to death in the end. Let's yeah. just say that. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Alright, so, spoilers. <laughs> I guess with that, man, maybe we should give like a little history, perhaps? Like how we came across the film? I don't remember how I came across it. I know that I've seen most of it. I told you earlier this week... And the more I thought about it, the more I wasn't sure I had ever seen it all the way through. And watching through it, I think that's still the case. I can't ever remember having seen all of it in that order, I guess. But I don't know. Like, it's always just kind of cool. Yeah, Christopher Lee was Lord Summerall at one point, and I mostly just remember the villagers and masks, to be honest. Yeah, that's pretty memorable. And the maple. Maple is pretty boss. I think the first time I watched it all the way through would have been during that little time span I've talked about how many times back in the early 2000s when I was getting back into collecting film. So it was one of those films. It was like, hey, I need to fucking watch this film because of its importance, not only in the horror genre, but just in film in general. So knowing that Christopher Lee was in it was a big part of that bargain. So yeah, it's probably like 2003 or four. I'm going to guess I had never seen it all the way through, just because I did not anticipate or remember how crazy it gets so quickly. Because we're going to talk about this here in just a second. Oh, yeah, like, we have to get into this a little bit, because it gets... I was just like, oh, what the fuck? Upon this watch. And I did not remember that, like, every eight minutes there's, like, a break for a song. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Going through it this time around, as we do, I was thinking, holy shit. This could have been a music video, <laughs> literally for all the songs in this fucking film. It almost reminded me of, did you ever see the video for the Leonard Nimoy, Bilbo Baggins song? I have, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I have. Kind of reminded me of that. Makes sense. <laughs> That's fucking funny. First off, I watched the theatrical for one of my viewings, and then I watched the final cut. I didn't watch the long cut. Yeah, I didn't see the extended cut either. Although I do have a copy of it. Not a physical, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, the first time around, should mention this for those who do have it. This is available on Shudder. And I believe it's the theatrical cut that you'll get to see. That's how I watched it. That's the first time I watched it for the podcast was through that. And then the second time I did find a 40th anniversary, the final cut, which is the director's preferred cut of this film. Just like the 93 minute. Yeah. The theatrical's 88. Mm -hmm. And then and the extended's 99. Cut. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't watched that particular one yet. So there was a few things I noticed, just a couple of scenes that looked like they were added either earlier or just in a couple of added scenes. And there's definitely one line that's changed through ADR. Yeah, there's, there's some dub in this. <laughs> there's no doubt. But I noticed between the versions, 
there's one line where we'll get to it because okay. I first I want to point off one of the big changes though is how the movie opens. Oh yeah, for sure. Which I very much appreciated this change just because I feel like it sort of more establishes like the religious themes of the movie because in the theatrical cut you don't get the opening in the church. Exactly, and that's you, kind of thrown in <clears throat> later on in the film. And you don't get the fact that the movie's basically bookended by two religious ceremonies going on. Exactly. Which is really cool. Where he sings the same song. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting, eh? Yeah, so there's a little, little foreshadowing in that regard. Yeah, but you're right. It gives you a little bit more background into the character who is Sergeant Howie in this film. Okay. Yeah, a little bit more, and it sets up his devoutness earlier. But there's a change that takes away from his devoutness later that I found weird with that change being made. But okay. uh, I did want to get into that right away. So right after that, you go into the credits, which is like a four-minute credit opening sequence, which it was long, but it was like super pretty Scottish scenery and shit. Yeah, it was like, really cool. Actually, uh, believe it or not, a lot of those scenes were shot in South Africa because of the budget. Mm. But then I made a note that by the 13-minute mark, which... You could fast forward through all the credits, which would make it more like the nine minute mark. <laughs> yeah. And if you're watching the theatrical cut, you don't get the scene in the church. So it makes it more like the seven and a half minute mark, which is why it stood out because it's happened so early in the movie. When he's in the green man, the inn. Right. I know you're talking about. And the gay bartender. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, I know you're talking about. The landlord. The landlord introduces his daughter. And immediately, every man in the town, if you're not catching the song that they're singing through the accents, I wrote down a little transcript of what's actually happening. Yeah, some of the verses or the lyrics need to be... He goes, uh, here's my daughter, and the entire town starts singing a song that basically boils down to, she likes to fuck. Yeah, it's like we've all had her a time or two. And her response is to get completely into it and giggle and clap and dance along. Yeah, she's totally legit with her uh, promiscuity. Within like a scene and a half for dessert, she's offering him the peaches and cream. Yeah. There's a lot of openly innuendo and some, you know, subliminal stuff. Yeah, and that's the thing. I don't don't think peaches and cream was slang for that yet. Not yet, but it could have been. (laughs) That could have been the OG for that term. (laughs) Talking about peaches and cream. Like, damn, now I know what you mean, girl. Like I said, eight minutes in in some versions of the movie, 13 minutes in when I watched it today. Still, that's that's quick. And already at that point, the town's being set up to be weird. Yeah, like they're down. I guess that's the big takeaway from my watching of it. Even though I had seen parts of it before, for sure, because, as I said, I remembered the Maypole, I remembered the villagers, that shit. I had forgotten how weird the village is right off the bat. Yeah. There's something off about it, you can tell. The responses by all the old men on the shore are almost fucking rehearsed. And as soon as they know that he knows to a certain point, they all know exactly how much they can say. Yeah. And exactly when to cut it off and... That's every villager throughout this entire movie, and it's so creepy because they're like, I know exactly how much information I can give this guy. Precisely. like they've Based been on, on what it. he's showing me that he knows. They've been on it for several months, unbeknownst to us as a viewer at that time and to the sergeant at this time. So, yeah, it's well calculated, and it does add to that weird, like you are saying, they give you just enough but still leave you hanging. Well, i tell you something else, too, outside of that scene, going from the green man and the mm-hmm. landlord's daughter. 
you know, he has his dinner. He gives some a little exposition about his meal because apparently this island's known for its fruits and veggies. But the point I want to make is he leaves to go on a nightly stroll. And one of the first things he sees is that orgy <laughs> of people fucking, right? And like, no big deal. That's kind oh, yeah, of what and this that would be does. like seventeen minutes in. Yeah, so I mean, you're, there's not a no pun intended, but there's not a huge gap <laughs> between that. <laughs> and then he sees people watering, which looks like the cemetery lawn, or that small little cemetery they're in, and some woman who's stark naked, hunched over, crying on a tombstone, and almost looks like an open grave. So that even adds to more of that lore, and. You can tell he's he's shocked by all of this. It's like sensory overload for him. So eventually he goes back to the inn, wants his room for the night. This is where it kind of changes a little bit too, if I'm not mistaken, between the, the theatrical and the final cut. So when he goes back up to his room, there was a scene I thought was added in. I might have been dozing off at this oh, point. Oh, no, there was... Some... With Christopher Lee and this young man. Yeah, and he's brought as a quote-unquote sacrifice, but... It's with Willow. Willow being the stand-in for the goddess of love. Aphrodite, so, right? Exactly. So the fucking sacrifice is this kid has to go up and bone her. Sign me up. <laughs> the fucking weird thing is, is when he enters into the inn, and all the townspeople know what's going on. Oh yeah, they're they all, all listening stop, shit. <laughs> and they they stop exactly what they're doing, and they just watch as the kid walks by, yeah. and they know what's about to happen, but they're all acting like the kid's going to die. Well, you know, that's the funny thing about the sacrifice. But it is a sacrifice. Right. Like... It's a procession of sorts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It gets really calm and eerie. Then the band starts, starts to back sing. Was it Gently Johnny? Which is another completely dirty song. Right. Now, here's a cool thing about that for those who do have that version of the film. The guy who's singing is Paul Giovanni, and the band mm-hmm. or the group is Magnet. So they talked about the fact that they didn't realize that they would have to not only play the music before the shit was even filmed, but in between shots, they had to be extras and play the music at the same time. So that's where you get that music video kind of feel. But you're right. He's going up there to Bone Town. Most of the music, except for like the last song, is all filthy. I think the rest of the songs that the people sing are in pretty, some way related to sex. Pretty heavy. Yeah, when you listen to the lyrics. The next cleanest one would be the Maypole song, because although it involves boning, it's more about regeneration and the circle. Life. Yeah, and then maybe the Baba Black Sheep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's about the two cleanest ones you're gonna get. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's about it. Yeah, just funny. All right, along with that, some of the things that I had kind of pegged up, which is a, a major theme in this film, is just the Christianity aspect. Of him the, being a jerk-ass Christian? Yeah. I mean, he is very in-your-face and open about how devout he is. He's sympathetic for, like, the first ten minutes of the movie. And then he just falls back onto Christianity is superior because it's the default in this region. And that right. seems to be the only explanation <laughs> that he is able to give. Yeah, I mean, outside of the fact that he's there for this mission, he's looking for the girl... Yeah, I mean, everything that he encounters as that form of paganism or something that's like hush-hush from a Christian's standpoint, you know, like open sexuality, actually talking about phallic symbols and (laughs) teaching it to the young kids. He's shocked and aghast at the fact that they're teaching this to the kids. And that's how he defends himself is like through Christianity. I mean, it really is back and forth being given 
just sort of the ridiculousness of kind of both sides throughout Oh, no it. doubt. Because he gets called out directly by a couple of people. Christopher Lee calls him out like, oh, Jesus was born of a virgin, right? Like, yeah. impregnated oh, through his spirit. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what are you getting on about? Like, is it any different that we're trying to get spirits to impregnate these kids? Like, yeah. But you <laughs> yeah, get a little bit of like, he sees Miss Morrison doing some folk cures at one point and later on has a line talking about how they teach backwards science as well as religion to contrast that far earlier in the movie you're getting an actual like sex ed class yeah <laughs> yeah no you're right which most christian conservatives such as him would try to keep out of it altogether yeah that's exactly right no that's kind of the interesting thing that this film brings up is that it doesn't necessarily skew one side or the other it just shows you the comparisons and contrast or how a newer religion which in this case would be christianity how it borrows from the old religion and then mocks it in a sense but i mean both sides have their own set of superstitions that are quite laughable at times and i think a big kind of theme when you look at both sides and how they're presented and how he argues his case because other than the fact that, I mean, this was released, and we live in the product of, you know, a Christian-dominant region, we sort of know the default that he's arguing, but we get to see their default. And from the actual arguments being made for both sides throughout the movie, you sort of get to see how it's just a product of what you're raised in. Yeah. And point. then you get to hear directly from Christopher Lee that his granddad kind of just made it up. Yeah. He just kind of happened upon this land that had some really rich soil. I mean, he doesn't flat out say it, but he definitely implies that it was just... He kind of does flat out say it. He's like, it was a way to keep them motivated. His grandfather never believed there was any actual spirits behind it. But... On the off chance? <laughs> Did it seem to you like magic was kind of happening in this movie? A little bit. A little bit. But I I don't know how much I read into it, though. You know what I mean? It's like I liked the ritualistic aspects of it and the historical aspects of it, but how much, I don't know. Because I feel like the naked dance, I feel like something was happening there. And I feel like the reason he came to this island in the first place is because there is some force at work. I don't know. Like, who wins in the end, I guess? You know, that's a good point. I don't even know if that's really the point either. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, yeah, on one side of the coin, he is a martyr. On the other side, they get their ritualistic sacrifice of a certain order. So you could say both sides win, but also both sides lose. Because <laughs> who's to say that they're going to get a bountiful harvest and they just killed some guy? Because, yeah, I guess the options that were given in the end, I'd say there's three options in the, in the end that were given, right? Either he's right, in which case... He becomes a Christian martyr, is assured to go to heaven, even though he died, and he lived a good life. Yeah, I suppose. You can look at it that way. He's stuck by his principles. If he's lucky, God will answer his curse, and their crop will still fail. Yeah. But I'd say the other side of that is that the old gods are right, and they don't require his martyrdom... Like, it doesn't matter to them if he becomes a martyr. They just need a sacrifice, right. and he fulfills literally all of the requirements. Right. Martyrdom just so happens to be a byproduct. Yeah, that, that's that. just a bonus for him. Yeah. So if they're right, 
than which seems to possibly be the case because I still can't explain why he would show up to the island without any sort of backup to begin with. Yeah. Especially after getting a creepy letter just addressed to him. Yeah. And deciding to show up in his police full on, you know what I mean? You know, it's a very good way of looking at it too is, yeah, somebody gives you a handwritten letter specifically to you and you have to fly out a good distance to get to this island, you would at least hope that they would stick you with a partner. Yeah. (laughs) You know, if nothing else. Because you've got to be assumed to be a target at that point too. So I would assume... He didn't tell anybody. That's a good point. He could have just said, you know, I'm going to go up here for a weekend and check it out. And I mean, that's partially just manipulation of them knowing who he was and the fact that he is fucking lawful, stupid and shit. That's another thing, too. We have to take in consideration that he alluded, I think it was to the photographer, the old guy, about how long it had been since not only did she go missing, but since that last festival, which... Would have put it around Samhain, the Harvest mm-hmm. Festival. So he said eight months prior to, to May would have put you in like that end of October, November area. So they had enough time to get the goods on him. Mm-hmm. But then there's a third option, which is the realistic option, where all religion's bullshit and is just a way to fucking control the people, as was spelled out by Christopher Lee. That's the, what his grandfather intended it for. Yeah. In which case, things could still fail and his curse would come true, but it wouldn't be the byproduct of his God. But that also would mean that he lived that way for no reason yeah, and that they killed him for no reason. But the other thing about that is just because it was conceived that way doesn't mean that either of the other two also aren't true. I know what you're getting at with that. There's a lot of things that aren't necessarily spelled out at the end that gives you clarity. But it does propose those questions and maybe philosophical debates. Right. You know, which is cool. Just because, yeah, just because he started it to socially control people doesn't mean that he still didn't awaken the old gods. Right. Because I still say that some sort of magic's happening. There is something that's there. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you there. There is something at play that they're holding on to. I mean, outside of just the fact that they're going through these rituals, but there's something inherently correct for them to keep doing what they're doing. So I know one of the things that I do remember about the 2006 version is they spell out a lot more clearly that harvests have been really bad for a while and it keeps just being a social control thing, Mm -hmm. which isn't spelled out as much in this one. Otherwise, we wouldn't have just been able to have that talk for the last eight minutes. (laughs) Like, how do you think they have been? Like, Christopher Lee as Lord Summerall has just been able to maintain social control? Or do you think they have been good enough that this is now a step that they have to take. I would think knowing that it seems like every year they have a harvest, you know, naturally, and they take pictures of the girls who are kind of in a way they're like the sacrifice in order to ensure good harvests. So as long as that's going well, then all of those little other things they do, the maypole dancing and the leap of fire and all that good stuff, at least the way I interpreted that, everything's going kosher. Everything's, you know, going according to plan. So as long as that's cool, then they have nothing to worry about as far as stepping up the ritualistic sacrifice. But because we know that, it looks like last year was kind of a fuck up. And maybe Lord Summerisle is unsure of which direction this could mean for that community in the village if it continues so they have to perpetuate the idea that they need this ultimate sacrifice, and he fits the bill. He didn't just keep managing to fucking fit the bill, though. 
oh my god i love watching through this movie knowing that they're just playing him oh yes they are and how fucking dumbly he just plays along well and they specifically need him to be the fool and he is i mean part of his religious obstinance is literally him just being the fool and i feel like it's not like he should be like oh i'm a pagan now but he's refusing to even hear out these people because he's so set in his ways. Well, that's the thing, too, I think, that fits into that build. You know, they talked about the fact that they need somebody. Even though he's being authority. presented with yeah. almost proof he, around him. He's given so many outs in this film that any one of those actions. He could have fucked her. That's, well, I want to get to that here a little bit. <laughs> right? So, yeah, you're right. Throughout this film, there's several warnings heeded, not only by the women. There's a little bit more obvious outs. But the men tell him, too, like, you don't want to be here during this time or during this day. It's They're continuing to try to give him that out. But they know that he's strong in his convictions, <laughs> that he's not. So they're toying with him, even though they are giving him that out. They're giving him every ample opportunity not to be a sacrifice. Oh, my God. He could have fucked her. Man, he could have fucked a bunch of people in this <laughs> if he wanted to. <laughs> All right, so... Since we're talking about that, this kind of gets back into the doubles. and I'll, He could have fucked the landlord. He could have fucked the landlord. <laughs> the landlord could have fucked him. It's all relative, I suppose. So I talked about Britt Eklund. She's the one who played Willow. And there's a couple of doubles you know, because she's Swedish. But She's only the waist-up scenes. Right. So the body doubles for that were during the gyration scenes, the dancing scenes. Lorraine Peters was her body double. And then from the back with the wall scenes. Okay. That was Jane Jackson, which was like an 18-year-old actress that they brought in. So, because she was three months pregnant, that's why they had to do it. And from what I understand, too, is like at conventions when she was still around, that she would not sign. She wouldn't sign those because she's like, that's not my bottom. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and she would have to explain, too. Like, that's not me. Yeah, exactly. Which is funny because, yeah, you're right from the top up. It's apparent. (laughs) So if you're going to have her sign a picture from the Wicker Man, make sure it's top up, because that is her. Make sure the boobs are in the picture. <laughs> yeah, Preferably don't, don't give her the ass shot, because none of them are her. They're not hers, yeah, which is That's awkward. not her booty. Okay, so she was also dubbed her voice. And for the Ooh, voice... The dub, I want to get into something. Yeah, the voice was done by Annie Ross, and Annie Ross is known for being a part of the group Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross. This is like back in the, I want to say late 60s, early 70s. They had like six or seven different albums. I don't know much about them. But for the singing, it was done by Rachel Verney. So she had multiple people doing different parts for her in this film. This kind of ties into the end a little bit. I do feel like if on a, like a metaphysical level behind the scenes at the end of the movie, there is some sort of clash between the beliefs going on, you know? At the very end, he's literally trying to play spoilers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he knows he's fucked. He's going to die. But he's literally trying to just call on God to, like, fuck with whatever pagan ceremony they're doing. You know what I mean? Right. His assumption, and nobody knows for sure what the rules are, is if he instills doubt, then it might fuck it up, right? Or if at least if his God's as strong as he hopes it is. Right. I feel like the change that they made with the dub shows that he starts to lose his own faith earlier on because in the theatrical cut the only reason that he resists is his faith in the director's cut his reason for the first two-thirds of the movie is his faith and they re-dubbed it and when she asked why he didn't come over in the final cut he says it's because he's engaged and that's the only reason 
Yeah, I can't remember exactly if I picked up on that. Like, he starts the to have a fucking... It starts to be like, this isn't strong enough. Like, I mean, it's still loyalty, but right. he's not putting God first as he's supposed to be at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he does have those fallbacks, and you can see there's a temptation during that scene. I mean, he's literally trembling, dude. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we find out that he's a virgin, so his pants must have been like rock solid. <laughs> They would have been having to do all kinds of construction on those walls <laughs> had there been anybody else in that room. As fucked up as it's going to sound, I think for most gentlemen in this <laughs> equation, is if you keep getting tempted like that, something's going to give in. Regardless, I think, of perhaps your faith. Not all, but <laughs> there's a large percentage that would like, well, when in summer aisle. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's what I'm getting at, too. It's like, man, I would have been out with that. And if not, a librarian scene, I was like, I'm done. Movie's over. <laughs> She's in the bathtub. She Movie's seems over. ready to go. Movie's over. <laughs> yeah. We can cut the last 15 minutes out. <laughs> I'm going to wait an extra second to see if she gives some enthusiastic consent. Like, and then I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... That's kind of the funny part, though. I mean, but you're right in that it gives you a little bit of different insight into his character at that point in the film. He's faced against his own mortality at this point, and I like the point that you made with if he can give a little bit of doubt, perhaps, in just one of them, maybe two of them, then maybe he can get out of this situation. So he just falling back on what he knows at that point. That's what I'm saying, though. If that's his assumption, then I feel like it has to go both ways. Yeah. And if he stopped being able to reliably only base it on God earlier on, then his plan might fail as well. Which is why there's so many different ways you could interpret that ending. You can. No, I mean, since we're talking about the ending a little bit, too, is from what I understand is that the studio didn't oh, like the way it ended. wanted him to get saved, didn't they? Yeah. Of course they did. Fucking studios. And I'm like, man, no, Why? 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 Fuck that. <laughs> For me, it's one of the most important endings, I think, in cinema, in horror in general. It's just like, man, it's so bleak and dreary. But on the other side, it's like, well, they're going to get their crops next year, perhaps. Say, one year later, do you think the crops... How do you think the crops do? I would hope that it was better. I mean, personally, I would be like, man, I hope them apples come back in full force. Dude, yeah, first off, he was enough of a jerk when he was doing his investigation that I hope he's wrong. Man, and I just, hope I hope everything comes back full force. busting in people's homes. But beyond that, like I said, they kind of hint that magic of some sort is happening in this yeah. movie. And if that's the case, they literally fulfilled everything to the T using him. He was set up from the fucking jump in this oh, movie. Oh, no doubt. In which case, I say good harvest then, right? Yeah, reap what you sow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I would think so, man. I mean, I would hope so. Yeah, I guess some of the things I want to talk about a little bit are the symbology that's used in this film. It's like super heavy. I like it a lot. They did a lot of research prior to filming, so that's kudos to them. But I started looking into it too because it's like, man, this is... I want to see how much of this is actually factual and how much of this is just, you know, horseshit. No, they were spot on, man. I think I talked to you and we talked a little bit about this during the work week is the use of the names in this film. Like every one of the villagers has a name that's either like a flower or a tree or something that has to do with nature. From some of the stuff I saw was that they were spot on for the research at the time. Or what some of the I more can, popular yeah, things were at the time, because this was the 70s. So, like, the phallic maypole thing was an interpretation that had been floated a few times here or there. There's no historical basis for it, mm-hmm. but I think just like a year before, like, a pretty 
influential book had just came out that had talked about that as a, a potential basis. Do and a it, it's stuff like that. Like it's yeah, there was a group of people who were writing brilliant on that. for the time, but like there is no historical basis from any writings that maypoles are supposed to be a phallic symbol. Yeah, I see what you mean there. So that can kind of cut that out. But I do like that fucking scene in the film. Man, it's good. The use of yellow, too, was prevalent, too, and then the name Rowan mm-hmm. in and of itself. I was reading a little bit about that, and I wanted to bring that up with the name. So the Rowan tree is known as the Wayfarer's or Traveler's tree, which it helps prevent those on a journey from getting lost. So that was kind of interesting because this gentleman is on a journey, and he's getting lost at every step of the way. Now, in the Victorian era, it was used to ward off witches, and in the Neo-Druidism, it was a portal tree, which was a portal between two worlds. It could have been the afterlife and this life, which when you look at it, too, about the resurrection and reincarnation aspect of this film, it plays off of both of that aspects of it, which I thought was kind of neat. So I thought using her name as Roan was a unique aspect in this film. Kind of an interesting way of being symbolic, too. Some of the things I want to talk about, too, is the use of the hair in this film is very prevalent and just reading a little bit about what it meant for pagans and it doesn't even necessarily have to be pagans it could have been the greeks at the time romans they viewed hairs as a sign of fertility and there was something in this film they talked about a little bit was parthenogenesis and there's something that happens in hairs which is really neat mm-hmm. so during the spring equinox which, you know, this happens to take place right in between. It takes place on May Day. Yeah, I mean, and it's, the it's in between the, the vernal equinox and like the solstice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, May Day's right in between. But what happens during that time period, too, is hares start to kind of go crazy in a sense. They'll chase each other, they'll box each other. Usually, the boxing matches are between a female hare and a male hare. And they think it's because the female wants to see if the male is up to fucking it. <laughs> It can last, right? So, but anyhow, what I'm getting at is the unique thing about that parthenogenesis thing is that during the first cycle, when they're pregnant, as they're about to give birth, they've also already started a second cycle of being pregnant. Mm. So in a lot of the old mythologies, they thought that the hair could take on both sexes at the same time, being hermaphroditic. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's where they They get... thought they were doing it themselves, but yeah. it's just... Yeah, so that's why they held them in a higher esteem than some other animals. It's because they could both represent the male and the feminine side at the same time. So that's why they were revered for masculinity and femininity. Yeah, the whole transmutation thing too with the reincarnation. It's just kind of an interesting thing that they decided to make sure that they included the hair in this film because of its strong presence. And, you know, we we see it in the coffin. She talks about mm-hmm. it being transmuted like Romans entered that body or entered that spirit. So... I felt like they used the word transmutation very deliberately just to further point out the similarities with the transubstantiation. Yeah. Good point. That happens during the Eucharist. So Yeah, I mean that whole opening scene too is I mean, they're doing communion. Mm-hmm. He's quoting Corinthians, the first book of Corinthians, chapter eleven, for those who are familiar, verses twenty three, twenty six. So that's about the communion. And when you think about that, the communion and how it's the weak after Easter, I even looked it up the dates, like when Easter fell in 1973. So the film takes place, the first day you see is April 29th. So it would have been the week right after the Good Friday going into Easter and all that stuff. So I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting because that falls right in line with this other festival that's about to happen, which involves a ritual, maybe an extension of sorts. 
a martyrdom, etc. So I thought it was kind of a, a really cool way of comparing and contrasting the old and the new religion. Something we haven't touched on, the fact yeah. that fucking Christopher Lee is super funny in this movie. He gives he's a really good performance. He does, man. He's very sharp. He apparently... Some very deadpan, great lines. Just like his response to the fucking, <laughs> the naked fire jumping is amazing. I like that. What, he says something about, don't you like watching them? You know, I mean, that's kind of how he says it. <clears throat> Those youthful bodies jumping. <laughs> man, he's like, no. Oh, that's too bad. But you know, that's where he kind of talks about that too. Is like they believed that those spirits, the gods, their deities could impregnate them. Who wouldn't want that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, which is kind of cool. But that whole festival thing too with like the burning, those effigies and the bonfires and stuff like that. I was reading a little bit about that. But it does have a pretty big role in paganism because they felt like those fires and whatnot could help with the harvest. And they used to make the people who had like candles and all that shit in their home, they put them out. And then restart them with those bonfires. And then when they finally smoked out, they would smear themselves with the ash. So, I mean, all that stuff was symbolically important outside of just making sure that you can be fertile. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's all we really want, right? To be fertile. I would rather not I be like fertile. bonfires. I, mean, I don't want to get pregnant. I don't want to get... Yeah, good point. I don't want to get pregnant. Enough. But, you know, helping part's not too bad. <laughs> So one other thing, just one of the things that isn't spelled out, though, that makes it so you can go either way with what's going on. Do you think the villagers sabotaged his plane? Oh, yeah, for or sure. Or do you think they did it, or do you think it's just... No, I feel like the they went out there and fucked him up. <laughs> They're like, no, you ain't leaving. We know what your plan is. The thing for me, maybe, to give it that little bit of credence, is when he's going out there and they sneak up and they got all their masks on watching him, like... It's like they're mocking them. <laughs> That's kind of what I was feeling too, but I'm like, they still never quite spell it out. With right. I mean, it's open to interpretation. Especially for sure. like five minutes after the dance, you could be like, I don't know if that's how soon it was to the dance, but yeah, because I, I do feel like something is legit going on in the world of the movie. Something seems to be going on in that scene. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those films too that we can, in a sense, we can say that hey, there's something mystical going on, or there's like an outside influence per se. And the so, hand I mean, of you, glory you was not supposed to work no. on purpose. So. Yeah, which I thought that was kind of cool they used that. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that before in a film? or and, uh, In a film? Not that I can I think of. I can't think of it either. And if I think about it, maybe one other time. I feel like there's got a, a hand of glory has to have shown up in one of the Dresden books, but which I love. But So for those who are familiar, I guess they would chop off the left hand, typically, of the person who was a thief and <laughs> was hung at the gallows. And that was like the fat of that person. And it's supposed to help ward off spirits and almost like stop them in their trance too, like just put people under. So I thought that was kind of neat. It didn't work, but apparently you're supposed to put them out by milk. <laughs> That's the only way you're supposed to put it out. Mystical roofie. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we hope he sleeps for three days. It's like, no, you're going to wind up getting beat up with a fucking hey, candlestick. Let, let's watch this movie by candlelight. No, don't worry about how weird the candle looks. It's the only one I have around. <laughs> no, right? I have five candles. <laughs> Burning hand and chill, baby. Burning hand and... Damn. That gives a whole different meaning, eh? Fred of a glory hole. How about a glory oh, hand? God. <laughs> I liked it, too. That's fucking... That was one of the creepier scenes in the film. Yeah. Your boy's pretending to be asleep, and when he does, finally, there's that fucking hand. But they're also counting on him. Pretending. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's. it's I love all a that point. too, where they're just like at the bottom of the stairs, like he's asleep. I'm so glad he's asleep. He can't know that we're about to do this. Yeah, exactly. 
I mean, yeah, I like how they're setting him up so good. He winds up beating him. And he up, just dude. thinks he's so on top of it. Oh, yeah, no, no, he's no. He's the fucking fool. They he got him so it. good. That's what I like, too, about this film, was like the whole setup. And then Christopher Lee tells him, is like, the hunter has lured the hunted. He might have been chasing the rabbit, but he's not goddamn Neo. No, he's not. <laughs> not even close, dude. Dude, some other things, I guess, too, is thinking about how many times that Willow song. I think I've, I knew about that song before I knew about this movie. The more mm. I think about it, because of some of the bands that have covered it. I wrote down a few. The band Sneaker Pimps covered it. There's a band that I actually like, man, if you're into kind of like gothic folk music. Okay. There's a band called Nature and Organization who did the Willow songs. Really fucking good cover. Really strong cover. For those who also like Faith in the Muse, they did the cover of this. The Mock Turtles did a cover. I've listened to all of these, and the one that I'm more familiar with are the band Doves. They do a cover of it, too. And now they all have like variations and lyrics and stuff, but solid song, man. This whole soundtrack's really good. The Corn Rigs, I was joking with Patrick this week, singing that shit. The Corn Rigs and Barley Rigs. <laughs> Robert Burns is the one who wrote that. He's Scotland's National Bard, and that was written back in 1775. Okay. So they use an old one, and the other one I'll talk about, I suppose, is the uh, Summer's Coomin' In. Oh, right, right. That was like a 13th century song, and it was celebrating the return of spring, which is the very last song at the end. Everybody's in swinging arms. Oh, which is so awesome. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that this film does as far as like building that dread at the end. In a way, you're like, oh, maybe he can get out of it. Maybe he's saving this girl, and then nope. Yeah, I think the movie's great in just building that tension because things seem off on the island from the get-go. Yeah. But then there's the whole mystery, and... A little bit of foreshadowing with the beetle. Oh, yeah. Chasing itself mm-hmm. and running in a circle. Yeah. She even mentions, like, it always goes the same way. Like, it's being led on a path. You know what I mean? And yeah. they're leading him on a path. They know which way he's going to go. They really do a good job of using that kind of language in the film. And the closer he gets to it, the harder it is to get away. Yeah. And he does. He's just kind of chasing and his And you tail. just go with him on that fucking spiral. Love it. It reminded me of me in a video game, just running through a fucking town, ripping into everybody's houses. (laughs) (laughs) Ask questions later. (laughs) Yeah, he really sets himself up when he does shit like that. And it just, it goes to show like how much he fits that tragic character of Punch. You know, and they tell him about it. It's like, you fit every one of these motifs for the day. You played the fool. You wanted to be a king for today. So we're going to anoint you. And, and you, you whacked Judy. Why did you whack Judy? <laughs> Damn, Judy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things to like about this film. One of the weirdest things, I think, that I caught in this film, it's, you can catch it. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but that dude keeps the vial of foreskins. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw that. I was like, all right. Foreskins, all right. I guess that's the thing they still do. Is it's pickled, maybe. Pickled foreskins. Oh, man, I, I like mine I'm fried, good. but whatever. You know, teach their own. <laughs> I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah, so stuff like that. And, uh, you know, they actually show you the process of how he's processing these negative films. I thought it was really cool. I, I like that scene, too. Mm-hmm. That was really cool. Yeah, just overall, I mean, this is a really just good a film, good man. Movie. Go watch The Wicker Man. Yeah. I would Don't highly suggest. Don't listen to us talk it. about it anymore. Just go fucking watch. I mean, this it. movie has Shutter. been analyzed, you know, time and time again. But I felt like it was a good time to get into this film. We've talked about it several times. It's a classic. I mean, you get the Equalizer. You get the most interesting man who's ever lived right. in this film. All at once, you get, you know, for the time period, some really pretty blondes in this film. You get to see some boobs, pagans. <laughs> it's a good time. I, fuck yeah, bonfire at the end. I mean, if you like musicals. <laughs> 
community building bonfire at the end. Yeah, it's an exercise is, in how to raise a village. This is a movie all about how a community comes together to achieve a single goal. Yes, for those who are familiar, I want to drop a video game reference. It's like ActRaiser. It's like, just, we're going to build it up. <laughs> there we go. We do have next week planned. Yeah, we do. We hopefully have the next few weeks planned, but I don't want to announce those quite yet. Just but in we case at least have the next through. week. Yeah, exactly. But next week, we will be doing the movie Arachnophobia. So go watch Arachnophobia. Yeah, for those who are are up for it, yeah. If you've never seen it, unless you're afraid of spiders. If you actually have arachnophobia, you should not watch arachnophobia. Yeah, this movie gave you fucking nightmares. (laughs) And until then, if you want to keep up with us, please hit follow however you're listening to us. You can always head over to our website, www.friedsquirms.com. There's links up at the top to other ways to listen to us. Stream us down at the bottom. All sorts of news in between with our latest episodes, our archive, links over to the Instagram, Fried Squirms Podcast, our Twitter, at Fried Squirms, and our Facebook, Fried Squirms. Or you can always use the contact on the site, or hit us up, squirmcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from any and all of you. What am I missing? I think it about covers it all. So yeah, if you still want to hear from us, if you have any recommendations maybe down the road, if you want to collab, let us know. We're open. Yeah. We're just as open as that thing between my left toe and my right toe. (laughs) Got that right. (laughs) I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms, out. out.